0: All right, let's continue, our discuss, let's continue our introduction on the book of Peter. And uh, this is a two-week introduction of a very short book. <laughs> it's only three chapters, but it is packed full of stuff. And so today we want to talk about Peter as how he introduces the book, and he introduces the book in the way of increasing grace, increasing grace. There's a handout, Fred will hand it out if, you, if you'd like it, um, kind of helps you follow along with some of the scriptures we're using and, and uh, hopefully you can take notes on it if you'd like to. But last week we began the introduction of our study on the second letter of Peter and the reason why I believe this is such an important book today is because it's dealing with an internal battle that's happening within the church. First Peter dealt with an external battle and encouraged the people to withstand from the external forces and the persecutions coming from without the church. Second Peter is talking about the forces of evil that are coming from within the church. And those forces of evil would come in the in the form of false teaching and just minimizing the word of God. And we may not consider that evil, but anything that misses the mark of God is sin. And that would be evil. So it can be very... It can have a lot of truth in it, but if it doesn't go to the end, if it falls short of fulfilling what Jesus would have the gospel to say, then it's false, and it's something we need to be on guard against. And so um, Peter sees it happening in the early church already um, in his lifetime, It's only 67 A.D. or so, and he's already seeing the infiltration of false teaching coming into the church that's distorting the original message of Christ, and it's very dangerous. And so that's why he writes this book in some cases. So that's why I think it's important today. Um, So let's talk about it. Let's go into a little more detail. The theme of the book is faithful truth versus false teachers. That's the theme of the whole book. When you take a look at the three chapters, that's the primary theme of it. It was written in, in A.D. 66 or 67. Peter died in A.D. 67 or 68. So this was the last book that Peter wrote. And I always like to read last letters of people, like the second book of Timothy that Paul wrote in the last days of his life. Because when you're, writing, when you're reading the last letters they're making sure that they're getting the truth in it. They want to make sure that they're getting their last statement of faith in those last letters. And that's why I like reading this book, because of the, the urgency that, that Peter has. The, the The background in the audience, we've talked about this already a little bit last week, but it's the same audience as 1 Peter. This book is written four to five years after 1 Peter. Um, in fact, As we're studying in our Wednesday night class, the survey of the Bible, the whole New Testament takes place over only a hundred year span, whereas the Old Testament takes place over thousands of years. The New Testament takes place over a period of a hundred years, relatively short. And the New Testament is only written by eight authors, whereas the Old Testament is written by many more authors. So it's interesting. And Peter is one of those authors, and his life was fulfilled in lived it in the New Testament era. So his audience was the same as First Peter, and those were scattered churches around Asia Minor. Probably a lot of those people were the people that Peter ministered to on the day of Pentecost. Um, that first message that he preached were probably a lot of these people. And uh, so he has an interest in them because they probably got saved under his ministry. The purpose of the letter is, again, to give Christians hope. Hope in the face of tribulation and persecution. Especially coming from within the church, and that's that 's more dangerous if you will than coming from without the church don 't you think that if you have somebody that you think you can trust in the church and they 're starting to uh, give you some false information that 's a dangerous place because they 've already earned some levels of trust in the church, and when they start speaking false truths or false narratives, that impacts a lot more people and uh, so a dangerous it 's very dangerous when things coming from within the church, and that 's why Peter. When we get into that chapter, we're going to f- see him to be very direct, and rightly so. And uh, he challenges us to be on guard so that we will not be carried away by the error of lawless men. And he also says that he, we should grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Jesus Christ. So he's, he's warning us, and at the same time, he's given us a good offense. And an offense is to learn and to grow in Christ. So he's given us practical knowledge of what's happening and what's going to happen. The first chapter, I want to break it down by chapter so you know what we're going to be talking about. Chapter 1, Peter begins by encouraging believers to develop and show God the character resulting from their increased knowledge and measure of grace. There's that word grace. We're going to talk about grace later a lot. But it's because of the increasing measure of grace in their life that they can be encouraged to continue on in the, fa- in the fight. And this chapter, chapter 1, emphasizes the importance of spiritual growth, that there should be a daily pursuit of moral excellence, godly knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, love between brothers and sisters in Christ, and a selfless love that we take the emphasis off ourselves and put it on others. And the purpose of chapter 1 is that people would mature their faith. And how important it is that we have faith. We spoke a couple weeks ago about how we should know our faith. Before we can act our faith, we must know our faith. And so how do we know our faith? By reading the Bible, by hearing biblical teaching, by um, practicing what we hear. You know, the, the best defense is a good offense. You talk to any football coach, and they'll tell you, the, the more my offense is on the field, the better chance I'm going to have of winning the game. And uh, so they'll do everything they can to keep their offense on the field and keep the other team's offense off the field. And that's the same way we should be with the devil. We shouldn't sit back and, w- and let the devil just clean our, l- come in and take our lunchbox. We should make sure that we're keeping guard against him. And, so, and we do that by us taking a good offensive approach to learning and getting into the Bible. 2nd Timothy tells us again here's Paul telling Timothy in the second book of Timothy the last letter that he wrote he says this to Timothy in 2nd Timothy chapter 2 verse 15 he says to Timothy study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth what does that mean what is Paul telling to Timothy to do Get in and learn the Bible. Now, I shouldn't say the Bible. The Bible wasn't written then, but there was Old Testament Scripture that they were basing their life on at that time. They were writing the New Testament. So for us, we have a different application of that because now if Paul was alive today, he would be saying to us, get in and read the Scripture. It's written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and it's written for my benefit and for your benefit so there's no excuse why we're not reading it. Get in and study to show thyself approved so you can rightly divide the truth of God. Amen? That's what we need to do. That's our offense. That's our strategy against the devil's schemes to bring false teaching in our lives. Chapter 2 then, Peter deals seriously with the false teachers that were coming into the churches. He's very direct when he uncovers these people, and rightly so. He shouldn't be timid with these people. He describes them as greedy and arrogant and self-willed and ones who despise authority. Hmm. He has to go into detail like this to protect the true believers from the beliefs that are going to destroy them if he allows them to happen, allows them to continue in the church. So Peter has to expose them for what they are. And this was not a popular teaching, as you can imagine. For those that don't want to hear the truth of God, whenever you bring truth to them, it's not popular, is it? It's not that Peter didn't love them. In fact, he loved them so much, he had to tell them the truth. And so every good teacher that tells the truth, if it's done in love, you'll know it. You'll feel it. You'll know that what they're doing is telling you truth in love. A message shouldn't be measured by its popularity for it to be a good message. Because most messages that are popular probably aren't truth-filled. And I'm not saying that to be negative. I'm just saying it to be real, that truth always brings a level of angst. You know what it's like if you're with someone that is living by a standard higher than yours. And when you're around that person, it makes you a little uncomfortable. And we'll do whatever we have to do most of the time to bring that person down to our level. <laughs> that we We don't like it when someone is a, better person than us, maybe a little bit more holy. And what we'll do is we will have a tendency to th- call them goody two-shoes or brown nose <laughs> or, or a, a better than thou, holier than now person. And, and we do that because it's the way we deal with our tension. Rather than allowing that to inspire us to, maybe we need to pray more too. Maybe we need to get in and read the word more too. Maybe we need to get our life better in line with God, like maybe that person's life isn't. And we don't know what that person's life is necessarily, but, if it, but whenever anyone brings that level of authority into our life, it makes us a little bit nervous because we don't like the standard that it represents. That's the flesh, man, right? I feel, I feel it. Maybe you feel it too, but that typically the flesh man doesn't like authority. Typically the flesh man doesn't like it when someone teaches them truth that makes them uncomfortable because they're not comfortable rising up to that level of standard. But that's where God's at. Can I just say that much? But the Bible's pretty clear. This says God is holy, and if we're going to have relationship with God, we also must be holy. That's what the Bible says. So chapter 3 then talks about the time frame that we're living in right now, the last days. Even then, people were scoffing already at the return of Christ. And so the, ch- the, the third chapter is dealing with the false teachers that are bringing doubts, and, and some are even saying that Jesus has already come back. And there's a lot of false teaching going on, and so uh, there's a lot of denial that, of the fact that it's ever going to happen. So just as those in Noah's day, who had never seen a drop of rain from the sky, and here you have Noah building this big boat in his backyard, they're calling him crazy. I mean, it took him almost 100 years to build that ark. Think of that. None of us are 100 years old. But Noah spent almost 100 years, and his son spent almost 100 years building an ark for an apparent no reason because people don't even know what rain is, let alone a flood. So they're calling him crazy. Nobody had seen the flood up to that point in time. But when the flood came, Noah became, turned, changed from a crazy man to a genius. <laughs> and likewise, the rapture today. When we talk about the rapture, we've never seen a rapture, have we? So people that talk about the rapture, m- many people that don't believe it or have heard it too much all their life saying, ah, oh, it's not going to happen. It hasn't happened yet, has it? So it's not going to happen. So as in the days of Noah, it will be in the days of the last Day that we're living in, so and Peter addresses that very, very clearly. And we all know then after the rapture comes the perfect new heavens and a new earth that God's creating, and there's just a great, great teaching and promise and hope for all of us that will see that day. So, with that kind of as a background, let's get into the introduction of Peter, the way he introduces the book. So Turn in your Bible, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It's written on your paper, or open up your Bible. I encourage you to open up a Bible and put notes in it and mark it up a little bit. This is how Peter addresses it, and then I'm reading out of the New Living Translation so you know what translation I'm using. This is what Peter says. This litter, letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you, I'm writing to you who share the same precious faith we have. This faith was given to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I just pray, God, that you would help us with this study now. And I pray that as we read your word and as we attempt to, to divide it, that we would divide it wisely and correctly, that we would not miss the mark, we would not miss the point that, you've, that you're trying to make for us today. And so I pray you give us your wisdom, give us your knowledge, and give us hearts to hear. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's interesting that Peter introduces himself as a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that so significant? So many times we read through the introductions of a book very quickly and don't really look at the words that are being said as they're introducing themselves. But it's important, I think, that we listen to the introduction that Peter gives of himself. Why does he have to say that he is a slave and an apostle of Jesus? Well, I think if we go back... To Our message last week, recognizing the importance of learning how to be a good follower before one can be a great leader, Peter has to see himself as a follower first, especially knowing that he 's going to address false teachers in the church he it would be a, it would be wrong, and it, he would probably people would misinterpret what he 's saying if he just says i 'm an apostle of jesus and i 'm going to come and tell you how Wrong you are. (laughs) So I think he has to first recognize and be recognized as a slave or a servant of Jesus before he can be recognized as an apostle. Does that make sense? And that's likewise for you and I today. I think that we need to know that um, we just can't come in and demand respect. We have to earn it at any level of life, right? Husbands and wives, it's with you as well. You earn respect from your spouse and your children and employers to their employees and such and, back and and that way as well. And it's the same way in the church. If I'm going to be a leader, I need to have respect. I need to earn respect of people. And that's really important that Peter knows that and he addresses the false teachers only because he has the respect of the fact that he was known to be a follower of Jesus first. And he was a servant of Jesus first. And I see that so important in my, let me just share my life story a little bit in that regard, because I find myself constantly having to come to the Lord and, and just re-surrendering on a daily basis. I, I will just promise, I will just tell you, I am so over my head when it comes to pastoring, and I know we have a small flock. Now, I was down at a at a church on, uh, on Thursday down at Brightmore Tabernacle and it's a church of 2,000 people and huge auditorium and, and a huge program and paid staff and just, it was a business as much of a, as a ministry. Um, but I will say that the weight of dealing with people's lives isn't based upon numbers of people. If I have one person that I lead astray that's as important to me as if I had 100 people or 1,000 people that I led astray. So the weight of being a pastor and a leader is not based upon how big your audience is. And if it is, then maybe that would look at you as maybe being maybe a false teacher. (laughs) Because if you're basing your ministry on the size of your congregation, um, I think you're missing the point. That's just my opinion. So I take this very serious, and I come before the Lord on a regular basis, saying, Lord, if you don't give me the ability to do this, I can't do it. I can't do it. And so I'm asking you, I'm coming in you, and I'm saying, I'm a slave, I'm a servant, and I need to have your wisdom, and I need to have your knowledge. And if you don't share it with me, then I might as well find another job, because then this is just a job to me. And, is that, and, and I'm doing everyone that listens a disservice. And so for that, um, I understand what Peter's saying here. It gives me, actually, it gives me a little confidence, a little hope that I'm not alone in this. Because if Peter had to ask for God's help, if he had to come back and say, I'm a slave and a servant of Christ before he claimed as an apostleship, then it gives me a little bit of assurance that I need to do the same thing. And I'm in good company, I guess. So um, I hope that makes sense. So as we continue to look at Peter's opening remarks, who is he writing to? Well, go look at your scripture. He's writing to believers because he addresses them as you who share the same precious faith we have. And you know what's interesting about church is that if you look around, I don't care the, di- the size of the church, it doesn't make any difference, but when you look around at the people that are in the church, we probably don't have a lot in common with them. Uh, outside of the church. Um, And I find that to be very interesting. The one thing I have in common with a fellow believer is faith. And it's a precious faith because it unifies us together. The difference between a church like that means that you have people with multiple gifts that aren't like you and they're not like me. And when they operate the way they're supposed to operate, we have a functioning body. And that people bring their gifts together and they're very different. Um, Very different in scope, very different in purpose, but when we operate well together, we bring the gifts together, and it's a functioning body versus a club or an organization. Because if you go to a club, you're going to that club because you have a common interest, like a flying club or a car club or a golf membership club. You go because you're a golfer or because you like cars or because you like airplanes. And you go to a club like that basically because you're good at what you do. I don't know many members of golf clubs that you pay to become a member of the golf club that is a bad golfer. You, go to the, you become a part of the club because you have an interest and because you're good at it. A church is so different because we come and most of the time we're broken and we're not good at what we're doing. We come because we need help. We come, if the church is operating well, the church should be like a hospital. A church should be welcoming those that aren't doing well, and we should be coming around those people and surrounding them and helping them. so different than a club. If a church is not a club, if a church is a real ministry, then we will have many gifts operating in the church, and it will be well-functioning. That's why I think it's important that Peter is saying that he's writing to those who have the same precious faith. What is faith? Faith is something that it goes against our natural order of men. I mean, we are not geared to have faith because we want to know what it is we believe by seeing it first, right? It's hard to have faith in something that you can't see. Faith is something that is... Um, has to be developed in us. Normally people um, don't gather together in a mentality of a like faith unless they truly have an experience with Jesus Christ because it's only those that understand the relationship and how important it is to have a relationship with Jesus that can really come together in like-mindedness. So faith is important and that we share it and that we encourage each other. It's a hunger. What I find interesting about faith for those that truly are faithful people is that they're always wanting to talk about Jesus. They're hungry to talk about him more and more. When, when I, can, I can have coffee with a friend or a buddy, and I can know, even if they don't go to the church here, I can, I can pretty much test, and so probably can you. You probably can see in their heart and mind who they are by what they want to talk about. If Christ never comes up in the conversations and probably they're probably not sharing the same faith you share. That doesn't mean you don't have to be friends with them. No, you still be friends with them. You just learn how to share your faith with them. But it's so important that we share our faith, and and it's a hunger for more of what God has for us, and it's a hunger in the righteousness of God. Now, what is righteousness? Righteousness is the right things that God stands for, that Christ stands for. It's a faith that we can have only through the righteousness of Jesus. Because in our text, if you read the text, it's the justice. We have this relationship with, with Christ or with others because of the justice and fairness of who Jesus Christ is. And that's where grace comes in. That's where grace comes in. Because he, then he, finish, he finishes the, the opening introduction by saying, May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. So let's talk about grace. Let's talk about what is grace. Grace can be defined very simply as God granting favor and benefits to us that we don't deserve. Grace is God granting favor and benefits that we don't deserve. So what does this mean? What does this really look like? Is grace a one-time event? Or is it something that we grow in? The text kind of gives, gives us a clue because it says that God can give us more and more grace. Grace. So grace, obviously, according to the text, is not a one-time event. It's something that grows within us, and we can have more and more grace. And so that suggests, then, that grace must come in various quantities and with, very, and, and with different, differ, um, differing purposes. Why? It's not always the same. It doesn't always look the same. It comes in different levels, different amounts, and God grants it. You know, when we think about God's grace, it starts off by drawing us to him. So the first thing about God's grace is that it is a drawing agent to us because we are not able to receive God's grace unless he draws us to himself. If you look at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, it says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. This is verse 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So grace is an unmerited favor that Christ gives us while we were still sinners. We didn't clean ourselves up so that Jesus could love us. We didn't clean ourselves up so that Jesus could die for us. Jesus died for us while we were still in our sin. And while we were still enemies of the cross, Jesus died for us. And then he gave us grace, and that grace would draw us unto him. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says that God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. So grace comes first as a gift. Something I don't deserve, something I don't earn, it just comes as a gift through God's love and his mercy. He gives me the grace, the gift of grace, so that I can be saved. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. That's the amazing part of grace. It's so abundant, everybody has a measure of it. Even as a sinner, we have a measure of grace because if it wasn't for God's grace as a gift, that sinner wouldn't be called to salvation. Grace is extended to all people first. Whether you deserve it or not, none of us deserve it. We're all sinners, and God gives us grace. So once then, grace comes in, what does it do? That is basically um, day one salvation. That is day one grace. That is the initial outpouring, the initial gift of grace comes in the fact that we can be saved and that we can have a relationship with God because our relationship was broken, right? It was broken by Adam and Eve. But now God's grace is the, is the bridge. So the second thing grace does is that it comes to set us free from sin and it gives us help so that we can live a gracious life that we can live a life that is obedient and a life that desires to please the Lord. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Paul says in this, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? It's a question. Paul answers the que- He asks the question to the Roman church. He said, Okay, now that you've been given God's grace, what do you do with it? Should we keep on sinning so that God can give us more grace? Is that the purpose of grace, that it's just going to forgive us of our sins? So let's sin more. The more we sin, the more grace we're going to get. Is that what it's about? No, not at all. In fact, he answers it right there in verse 2. Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in sin? Then he goes further, a little bit further down in that same chapter, uh, the verse 20 and 22 of Romans chapter 6. He says, when you were slaves to sin you were free from the obligation to do right. So what does that mean? When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. Because when you're a sinner, you don't have the obligation that a Christian has because you don't know right from wrong in most cases, even though we probably don't have the excuse with God. But the obligation to do right is not the same outside the church as it is inside the church. That's why we are not to judge people outside the church. We're not to judge a person that isn't living for Christ because they are already judged by God. It's not our point. It's not our job to judge them. However... Once a person comes into the church and they declare themselves and call themselves a, a Christian, now we have to discern them by their fruit. Are they truly someone we need to learn from? Can we trust that person? So there is a judging or a discerning in the, in the body of Christ. For those that declare themselves to be a Christian, we need to see fruit in their life. If there's no fruit, or if the fruit doesn't measure up with what a Christian fruit should be according to God's word, then we need to be careful. Does that make sense? It means we've got to be careful how much influence they give unto our life because they could be a false teacher. That's what Peter's going to talk about later. So we have to measure the fruit of a person that declares themselves a Christian. That's what that's what Paul's saying here in Romans. When you were slaves of sin, you were free from the obligation of to, of, to do right. But verse 22, he says... But now that you're saved, now that you're a Christian, verse 22 says, but now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves to God. Isn't it interesting that he uses that word slave? Become slaves to God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, which is grace, the free gift of God, which is grace, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul explains it very clearly here that grace is a gift. It's a gift of God that saves us from ourselves. And then once we receive the gift of God, we're no longer slaves to sin, but now we become a slave to God and we change ownership. And that's important how grace comes in, and that's the more and more part of grace. So the proper work of grace ongoing then in a person's life is that it helps set us free from sin, but here's the amazing part of it, and this is what I think we have to get to because it not only does it free us from sin, but it changes our desires so that i don 't want to sin any longer. Did you hear that? It get different heart it changes my desire i don 't get i don 't get pleasure out of sin anymore when I was a sinning person it would pleasure i would I would be pleasured to go and run with the boys or the girls or do the things that I was doing wrong. It gave me a sense of pleasure for the moment at least. But when I become a true believer in Christ where grace now is, I've accepted the gift of grace and now I'm growing more and more in God's grace. Grace changes my desires so that I don't have the same pleasures. In fact, it hurts me to even think about sin. Then I know I'm growing up. That's a good measure of our maturity, is if sin is still giving us pleasure, then we need to measure our grace. Because grace doesn't say that I can live in sin and be forgiven again and again and again. We'll talk about it at the end. But grace says, no, it's changing me. It's changing me from my desires for wanting to do the things that please the Lord. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13 Again, Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he says, Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For here's the grace part. For God is working in you, this is the grace, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. We change ownership of our lives. When I'm a sinner, I'm at the center point of my life. When I'm a true believer, I'm at Christ is at the center point of my life, right? And then I have grace to help me to want to please him. And so it becomes a joy for me to be a Christian. That's why I can say wholeheartedly that living a Christian life may not be easy, but it's worth it because it gives me a joy that the world can't give, even in the hard times. Paul writes to Titus in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, again, talking about how grace is growing and working in our lives, he said, and we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will, will will be revealed. Because he gave us his life to free us there's the grace work again, to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. That's the slave part. <laughs> That's where grace changes us and makes us a slave to doing the things that please God. That's, and there's so much more that can be said about grace and how it helps us, it frees us, it emboldens us, It changes our desires. But with all that said, God will not force himself on us. God will not force grace on us. It's our choice to receive God's grace because God's grace can be resisted and it can be rejected. The reason that Peter had to write this letter was because God's grace was being abused by the false teachers in the church at that time. And if it was being abused then, how much more is it being abused today? How many people are giving up on church because people in the church have abused grace? Think about it. I know a lot of people that say, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I don't like church. I want to believe my church. I want to believe in the God that I believe in when I but I'm not going to come in church walls doors because Christians are hypocrites and they've abused grace and therefore people don't have a good feeling about going to church. How sad that is because church is an important part of our life. Coming together with other believers that share the same precious faith that that peter was talking about is so important that we develop relationships with people in church even though we're flawed people i get that but the but the grace of god can be resisted and it can be rejected and that's why peter had to be very very direct and therefore i need to be direct therefore a bible believing preacher today needs to be direct when it comes to false teachings regarding the abuse of grace Second Corinthians chapter six, verse one, the new King James Version says this: "We then, as workers together with Him, him as God, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain." In other words, people can receive it and lose it. There is no such thing as once saved, always saved. It sounds good, and people like to hear it because it gives them a sense of security. And believe me, we can have security in our salvation. I I don't want you to be afraid of that. You can have security in your salvation, but it's not because you were saved when you were 12. It's because you have a relationship with Jesus today. And you have that through an ongoing grace. You have that through a recognizing that I'm a slave to God. And it's a surrender every day. It's a resubmission of my life every day. I am assured of my faith. There's no question of my salvation, but it's not because I had grace once. It's because I have grace all the time in my life. I can't live without it. You can't live without it. So don't receive grace of God in vain because Hebrews chapter 12, chapter 10, there's a relatively long passage I want to read here, and it's a hard passage to hear. Because it can be considered hard teaching and hard preaching, and people turn their ears off when they start hearing this. But listen, this is very important. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 26. The writer of Hebrews is talking here, and he says If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? What that means is this. Listen, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to sin. I'm going to fall down. But I don't do it repeatedly, intentionally. I do things because I'm just a man, and you're just a woman, and we're going to make mistakes. If you have the right relationship with Christ, and if grace is operating in your life, you'll recognize it through a conviction of the Holy Spirit that you've sinned, and what you will do is you'll make it right you will repent, and you will say, Jesus, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Help me not to do that again. Help me to live life holy. Change me, continue to change me. It's your cry to have the grace of God change you. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying, there are those that have at one time had this grace, but they don't want to live by it anymore. They will go, keep on living a sinful life because it gives them pleasure. And they won't know, they won't go back and deal with the, with the conviction of it. What they'll do is they'll harden their heart to the conviction so that they don't feel the conviction any longer. And at that point in time, writer is saying that once you've hardened your heart that hard, because people can do it, they can reject God's grace over and over and over again, and they can harden their heart. At some point in time, there is no more forgiveness for that sin. That's a dangerous place to be. And people that will abuse grace... They will say, well, gods we live in the era of grace today. That means I have the license and liberty to do whatever I want, and God will forgive me. I used to live that way as a kid. <laughs> I mean, I would intentionally go out. I knew what I was going to do Saturday night, and I would know that on Sunday morning I'll ask for forgiveness. Well, how does that work? Do you think God's that silly? Do you not think God's going to understand my motives of my heart? that if I'm going to intentionally go live the way I want to live and then think that I can go back and and indulge him and say, okay, now, God, you have to forgive me? Do you think he has to when that's my intention? And I'm not saying that we in this church are living that way. I'm just describing the world today, all right? I'm describing the world that we're living in today because that's the false teaching that was starting to come into the church in Peter's day, and if it was coming in then, you know how strong it has to be today. And if we don't preach and teach strongly against this, then we can't really address it and we can't expose it. You know, one thing about Donald Trump, and I don't want to make this a political statement, other than the fact that he had such thick skin, he didn't care who he upset when he thought he was exposing untruth. He didn't care. And you know what? A pastor that loves people enough shouldn't care about it either. Because if I love you enough, I'm going to expose the sin in all of our lives. Not just your life, but in my life too. And in the life of the church, we have to expose the sin so that we don't abuse God's grace. I hope that makes sense. I hope you're getting that. I hope it, I hope it, 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 it might upset you a little bit, but I hope when you think about it and you think through it, I hope that you're looking at it and say, yeah, that's true. That's what I want. I want truth. I want it to be said in such a way that I can recognize what's true and recognize what's false so that I can choose truth. That's my heart. Jackie, would you come, please, as we begin to close today? This is just the beginning of introducing Peter. It's going to be a great study. I hope you stay with me on it. And I know we've covered a lot of information today. But God's desire for all of us is to experience the love that he has. And experience all that He has in store for us. Listen, people, we just can't even begin to appreciate what God has in store for us. We can't even begin to appreciate what heaven's going to be like. We can't appreciate the joy that He'll give us in this world if we'll just receive it. Jackie said it earlier. We were in our prayer time that that He breaks the chains like a string. But we have to let the strings fall down. <laughs> we, we can't take them back up again, right? So many times God will break the chain or attempt to break the chain of sin in our life, but because we're uncomfortable with that, we go back to our unconvenience or, or the things that we're comfortable with called sin, and we don't want to live in God's freedoms because God's freedoms are amazing. You know, I read a very hard passage in Hebrews chapter 10, but let me go back down a few more verses. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 35 and 37 this is the hope that we have the writer says so do not throw away your confidence it will be richly rewarded you you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God through God's grace that you will receive what he has promised for in just a little while he who is coming will come and will not delay Jesus is coming He's coming, and he's going to bring his his rewards with him. So for those that have kept their garments clean, for those that have applied the grace of God and not abused it, but applied it and grown in the grace of God, we have a great day coming. It's a day of promise. It's a day of hope. It's a day of eternal life. I can't wait. I can't wait. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for today. I thank you, Jesus, that you share your truth with us. And I pray, God, that our hearts would be open to your truth. Yeah, it may make us uncomfortable. It might maybe ruffle a few feathers. Maybe, maybe it'll step on our toes a little bit. But, Lord, I pray that um, we receive it well. I pray, God, that our hearts receive it and, and that your grace would grow more and more in our life, that it would truly change us. My prayer is that you'll change me, Father. Change me. I want to do the things that please you. I want what you want. Help me to want that more. Help me in my secret times, in my quiet times, when the times I'm all alone, and my mental thoughts and my daydreams and all these things. And help us all, Father, to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus and that we will be very careful of what we allow into our mind, into our daydreams. That we don't give the devil a foothold at all. That we will keep our hearts pure before you. That's our prayer today. And I pray that way for everyone in this church and everyone that's listening. And I thank you for your mercy and I thank you for your grace. Undeserved favor. Grow more and more in me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Jackie, let's sing the song. You Jesus Amazing
1: Grace How sweet the sound that it saves.
0: Father, thank you so much for grace and that it grows within us and that you are pouring more and more into our lives today. So I pray for everyone here, and everyone that's listening and watching that their grace would be without end, that it would just be amazing grace more and more that we would receive it, not resist it, not reject it, but receive it and love you with all of our heart. And we love you. Be with us now as we go in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Be blessed today.